Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. That, of course, is the opening to Revolver. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that is the opening to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, we'll be talking about it. It is roughly, almost, kind of, 50 years ago today uh, that uh, Sgt. Pepper taught the band to play. Uh, so that seems like a good time to be talking to Scott Fryman, a musicologist, composer, and producer, uh, and the lecturer behind deconstructing uh, Sgt. Pepper's. Uh, he is, uh, well, first of all, that movie, which features sort of a multimedia lecture by Scott, will be showing at Real Art Ways uh, in Hartford starting next Friday, uh, April 14th. Also in studio with me, we would never do the show without Steve Metcalf, who's dragged himself from his sickbed uh, to join us. He's now director of University of Hartford's President's College. Uh, he writes uh, about music for WNPR.org. Uh, and he is our music maven expert, savant, all those kinds of things. So, you know, uh, Steve, you and I have been emailing back and forth today, although because you have a cold, you weren't a very robust <laughs> correspondent. Um, but you know, one thing that I think you and I have agreed over the years, and, and I guess you say there, there may be consensus out there in Beatleland, Sgt. Pepper isn't the, maybe the greatest musical accomplishment of the Beatles. It's the greatest cultural accomplishment. You want to flesh out that? That's well, yeah. Uh, all I mean, and I don't, I don't mean to sound uh, sort of excessively Beatle geeky, but you know, I, think, I think when you think about it, and now that we've had 50 years to think about it, uh, you know, it's not too much of a stretch to say that Revolver was the more dramatic advance musically from what had come before uh, which was essentially Rubber Soul, than than Sergeant Pepper was an advance from Revolver. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, if you just check the tracks, we can go one by one. I don't think we want to do that. But uh, but I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's kind of received wisdom in many quarters these days, which is not to say, which is not to denigrate Sergeant Pepper and certainly is not to minimize the overall social and cultural impact of, of Sgt. Pepper, which I think for a variety of reasons was actually more profound. 
And, and Scott, I, I would like to begin that with, in fact, where your presentation ends, which was a, is, was a quote, I think, from Langdon Winter, where he, who says basically, yes. who describes, well, I'll let you describe it. Uh, what does that quote say? So he talks about the fact that when Sergeant Pepper came out, it was playing everywhere you went, and people were literally pulling into gas stations, and it was playing out out of the you know the the, the diners and the malt shops and and people's houses. Everyone was listening to this. There's a great if you saw um, uh, the, uh, the the program that's on um, PBS um, Sound. Uh, forgetting what's called but uh, the one about production oh, about Roger producers. Waters tells the story yes Roger Waters tells the story of pulling over to the side of the road with the with P- Pink Floyd and stopping to listen to all of Sgt Pepper when it was being played for the first time it was so um it, culturally as as Steve so eloquently put it it was such a defining moment and you have to remember this comes at a time where the Beatles had pulled off the road which was not something that bands were doing at the time. And there was no concept, really, of a studio-only band. And people thought this band had broken up or, you know, where, where are they now? They'd come out with Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane. That single hits in early 1967, and everyone's just waiting with bated breath. What is this album going to be? Because the single was so extraordinary. And so it was like this, this um, built-up, uh, uh, you know, um, they were waiting for this album to be released, and when it came out, it was pretty extraordinary. And uh, I think that that's another thing which sort of added to the fact that, that Sgt. Pepper was seen as such a milestone because it was a, a, a defining document from a band that was no longer going to be touring live. So, um, well, actually, I, I want to come back eventually. I, no, let's come back right now before we get uh, deeper into the music. So, Steve Metcalf. Um, what was the cultural change? And, and I, at one point, you cryptically in an email uh, to me said <laughs> that music became everything. Well, uh, let me mean by that sphinx-like <laughs> statement? Well, if you can't decipher that, then I'm sorry. I can't help you. Um, let me just say, sort of answer that two ways. First of all, just to follow up on, on what Scott just said, I, I, I have to say, because it was such a charming I don't know, sort of never-to-be-repeated moment that when uh, on July, uh, excuse me, June 1st of 67, when the album was released in the States and released, uh, you know, I think throughout uh, uh, Europe as well, uh, I I happened to be driving home from college that day to my hometown of Schenectady, New York. I threw my my, uh, two little, you know, crummy suitcases on the front lawn and raced downtown to the little record shop, which was literally the only record store in my town. And I and I kind of I didn't think much of it, but I sort of had to elbow my way through some people who were standing around in downtown Schenectady, on Main Street, and and did so. And I got inside, and I said to the owner, Charlie was his name. I said, "Okay, I'm here for the Beatles album." And he and he just kind of laughed at me. He said, "Steve, what do you think all these people outside are waiting for?" <laughs> and I looked around, and suddenly, for the first time, I realized there was like 200 people of various ages and. Hughes uh, standing around waiting for this album. So, so that's just a little personal sort of uh, affirmation of including the infant Jonathan McNichol in his <laughs> baby carriage. <laughs> you may have knocked over Jonathan's baby carriage. Uh, I, I, I think I now that I look at, uh, I think I can uh, I can see him in those. But um, uh, all, all I meant was, uh, I mean, and I'm sure we'll get into this in some greater detail. Is that when we talk about Sergeant Pepper as a cultural sort of touchstone, to to use a word I don't even know what really means. Um, you know, among other things, music, even serious music, maybe especially serious music, uh, had been in the throes of sort of uh, academically mediated 
12-tone or serial uh, compositional uh, norms and, and strictures and this sort of thing. And suddenly you had people like Stockhausen and Ned Roram, of all people, the, the great song composer, saying, wait a minute, this, this is among the most interesting stuff being turned out you know, anywhere by anybody. And suddenly music just really did become sort of everything and anything, uh, a situation that has lasted to this day. Um, I, I want to come back to that idea, particularly the idea that the most popular musicians in the world, we've made this point before, but at this moment, the most popular musicians in the world were, in effect, avant-gardists. I mean, you don't, that doesn't happen that, that often. But I want to begin uh, our musical exploration with something that you, Scott, uh, made reference to just a couple of seconds ago, the fact that, in a way, this album, Sgt. Pepper, the oeuvre, really kind of includes two songs that aren't on it. Uh, and, and two songs that, had they been on it, would have made Sgt. Pepper, I would imagine, an even more indelible thing th- than it already is. And so these were the two songs that were released uh, together uh, as a single. And so we'll hear a little bit of each of them. So, Scott Fryman, um, in a way, this uh, the story of Sgt. Pepper begins with these two songs that aren't on the album, right? The, the, the pulling yes, off the road and heading into the studio. Well, what do they yes. do first? They do these things. Explain why that was and why these aren't on the album. So these first started in November of 1966. They had all taken some time off after their last tour ended in August, and they'd come back into the studio. John brings in this song that he's written, Strawberry Fields Forever, and they spend a tremendous amount of time working on it. And there's so many things going on in that song. It's just a, a really incredible work. It's actually two completely different recordings that are have, uh, featuring two different complete uh, orchestrations, arrangements that are then synced up with um, recording technology. Sp- one side sped up, one side slowed down. Um, and as they're working on Strawberry Fields Forever, Paul has been thinking about an idea for a concept album as their first statement as a studio-only band. And he starts to think about uh, an album about growing up in Liverpool, about their childhood. He's already got When I'm 64, which is a song that dates back from their cavern days. And he decides he needs a companion piece to John's piece, and he writes Penny Lane, which in its, way, in its own way is another extraordinary song, a wonderful McCartney composition, a great arrangement by George Martin. Um, and as they're working on these songs and finishing them up, these are going to be the first two songs of this new album project, the Liverpool project, if you will. And Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, is getting a little nervous because there hasn't been any Beatles product for Christmas. The newspapers are starting to say the Beatles have broken up. He's renegotiating the Beatles deal with EMI, and he doesn't want 
uh, people thinking that the Beatles aren't going to be a going concern anymore. And he goes to George Martin and he says, give me something that I can put out to show people that the Beatles are still ex in existence. And Martin gives them the two songs they finished, which are Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. And in those days, what, what they tried to do at, at uh, Parlophone is, is not put the singles on the albums. The singles were separate. They didn't show up on the albums in most cases. And so those two songs were kept off of the next album project, and McCartney needed a new idea, which was Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, I think uh, Steve Rain and Paperback Writer did not appear on Revolver. Uh, Correct. Uh, Correct. So, so this is sort of something that no, nobody really does anymore. But you do sort of wonder. I mean, look, we could be here for 30 minutes talking about the amount of avant-gardism and studio wizardry that went into Strawberry Fields. Um, and I think that would not be a good use of our time. But the reality but, but is – yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I was just going to say what's important to realize is it wasn't just studio wizardry for the sake of studio wizardry. It could have been a total, total mess mm -hmm. because they were doing all of these, these, quite frankly, crazy things in the studio. And yet it's, it's a beautiful – beautiful, complex, uh, introspective work of art. It's, it it's holds up to analysis after analysis. And the song itself, the core song that Lennon wrote, is such a great song. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just going to the studio and let's see what kind of crazy things we can do. It's really taking that core song of John's and, can, and working on different... Uh, different work in the studio, different engineering tricks, different orchestrations, different arrangements to be able to come out with this really extraordinary composition. By the way, so Scott, that's what makes it so great. Scott, I, I seem to have in my memory bank something about George Martin later regretting that Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields didn't end up on the album. W was it actually his decision or was there some agonizing over it? I think it was his decision with Brian Epstein. Brian said, I need something to put out, and, and can we, you know, what, what have you got recorded? And George Martin said, here, take these two songs. I, I don't think it was that, you know, cavalier. I mean, I think, I think there was some thought to it. But, yes, George Martin later in life said, you know, I wish we hadn't done that because they would have made Sgt. Pepper even a stronger album, as, as you said. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, Steve, you know, this, first of all, goes back to a time when people listened to albums. And I'm not really saying that people don't do that anymore, but I think it's a rarer thing in the era, era of digital streaming and, and, and playlists and stuff like that. And, and you do think, I mean, I think we know which two songs would go to make room for, for Strawberry Fields and, and Penny Lane. Well, yeah, that is the other sort of, I, I don't know. To me, a uh, little little nasty secret of of Sergeant Pepper, which uh, there are these two songs that nobody much talks about or cares about, and and I think, at least in my opinion, really are don't measure up to the rest of them, and and I think that's sort of acknowledged, but nobody nobody really likes to say it out loud. I, I don't. Uh, I don't know your feelings. All right, feelings. Steve. So, what are the two songs? Well, I think you know what they are, but they're uh, fixing a hole and getting better. Interesting, because I've heard other people say, you know, why do we need When I'm 64 and Lovely Rita and so forth? Really? Uh, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, the album is, is, a, is a journey in a lot of ways. And you're going uh, through, and which is why I think it needs to be listened to as an album. Hmm. You are moving from style to style, from sort of uh, the personality of the narrator and the characters they're talking about from one to the other and so forth. And... Uh, you know, for me, and uh, maybe I'm a, I'm a, an exception here, but I, I think the album holds together pretty well. I do think there are better songs that the Beatles have written, but I like the way the album holds together. And I, I think those songs, in addition to When I'm 64 and Lovely Rita, have, a, have an important place on the album because uh, they give, uh, they give uh, some more um, 
uh, weight to the songs around them as well. You know, um, I think you need kind of a break from within you without you before you can come back into, uh, you know, a day in the life at the end of that side. And, and on, on the first side, you've got She's Leaving Home and you just finished with Lucy in the Sky. And, you know, I, I think they provide a, a value there. All right, so I, I want to, um, first of all, I want to get us back into the music a little bit more and hear some of the music and also hear a little bit of what Scott does. But um, since we're venturing into the waters of controversy, uh, Metcalf, I'll ask you another question uh, that, that's controversial, which is uh, I've, I've seen it written, I think maybe in this book, The Beatles, A Hard Day's Right by Steve Turner, mm-hmm. um, that that John was a little bit of a lazy beetle during this time, that, you know, that a couple of his contributions here, I happen to be a big fan of, um, uh, of Mr. Kite, um, and, but a couple of his contributions were sort of the cons- contributions you made if you didn't leave the house all that often, uh, and that there was a sense in which McCartney had assumed the mantle of a kind of auteur, that he, uh, with the assistance of Martin, or maybe it was the other way around, uh, they were going to create this thing that was a concept album, it was Paul's concept, you know, and that he was swinging the hammer uh, just a lot harder than, than John was here. What do you make of that? Well, I uh, I agree with that, and I think actually Scott makes that point very persuasively in his presentation that that around this time Paul, who who always I think was in in some ways the most assertive in the studio, um, you know, really began to kind of be the the beetle in charge, if you if you will, and you know, not without tensions from from John, but. But I think if you look at the results of, uh, of of the album, you know it's clear that that Paul is kind of calling the shots in a way that that Lennon is not, which, which of course makes, among other things, the addition of of the absolutely uncategorizable day in the life at the end all that much more interesting. Since since I don't I don't think you'd have an album without it. Mm. Um, Scott, I want to play a little bit of the kind of thing that you do in this movie so people can get a sense of it. And what we'll do is we'll just take a little bit of what you do with uh, the opening cut. So this is uh, some deconstruction uh, of Sgt. Pepper itself. Okay, now listen for that echo chamber. It was 20 years ago today when Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play. They've been going in and out of style, but they're guaranteed to raise a smile. So may I introduce to you the active number all these years, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band. And then the horns. Now here's a guitar part you might not have picked up on. And of course, three-part vocals from George, John, and Paul. So, Scott, uh, tell us your method. Tell us, tell the audience what it is that you're doing there. What are you using, and and what are you accomplishing? So, what I'm trying to do is give people a little window into the Beatles' creative process because it not only makes you appreciate their music better, which I believe, but it makes you appreciate all music better. And a lot of people have never been in a studio. They've never, never written a song. Some you know, don't play an instrument. And they think these songs kind of spring to life 
in the studio. You set up microphones, and there you have it. And I want to show the tremendous amount of work that went into these songs. And I do that by taking apart the tracks, isolating pieces, talking about the effects they use, talking about the arrangements that George Martin made, talking about the type of, of work that went into the take-by-take of creating the song and trying to tell some interesting stories um, along the way so that people listen to this music with fresh ears. And, you know, I mean, Metcalf, I'm sure somebody with your uh, level of acumen is hearing all kinds of things that I'm not hearing, but even somebody like me, I mean, we were reminded even in what we just played here, I don't think I ever thought, wow, the vocal on Sgt. Pepper, you know, <laughs> well, but well, you, you listen to Paul and he's just, you know, he's giving it all. I was all, just right? thinking that too, yeah. Me, me too. I mean, and, and the, the amazingness of Paul McCartney's voice, especially at that period, is just can't be overstated. I mean, there you have his kind of raw, soulful, rocky voice. You know, a few tracks later, you have the cherubic McCartney voice singing She's Leaving Home. I mean, it is a phenomenal vocal instrument, you know. And, of course, needless to say, this is all before auto-tune or anything like that. And Exactly. And his yes. pitch is laser-like. Mm. We're going to uh, take a little break here. We're talking about Sgt. Pepper. We hope you're enjoying it. Uh, and uh, we'll, uh, as we uh, go out of this segment, play one of those songs that I guess uh, we're uh, not entirely reconciled about. Uh, it actually is kind of an earworm, so we'll, we'll go out of this segment with Getting Better. It's getting better all the time I used to get So we're talking about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. We have uh, so many things to say, and we have uh, two great guests to say those things. Scott Fryman, a musicologist, composer, producer, lecturer behind Deconstructing Sgt. Pepper's. That is a movie that you can see at Real Artways in Hartford starting next April 14th. Uh, also with us, uh, we wouldn't do it without him, Steve Metcalf, uh, director of the University of Hartford's President's College, uh, writes about music for, among other places, us at WNPR.org. Uh, and always does these shows with us. Uh, and so I I, I want to just talk for a moment about the idea of a concept album. Um, and one of the things, Scott, that you point out in your presentation is it was a time when there were going to be other groups kind of do, doing things that might be called concept albums. But I don't know, this maybe went a little further, right? McCartney had this vision uh, of connecting the past with the present with this kind of, you know, music hall band that somehow or other connected to psychedelia. Was this really kind of, uh, in your view, the first time there was something like that, an established rock band giving itself to a concept? Well, so I, I do think that there are there is a dispute about whether this is a concept album at all, because really, you know, I think that McCartney's original concept uh, was to have this even more of that band kind of narrating us through the album. There would be some kind of connecting story, and clearly, there is no story that connects the songs. Um, when I describe it, I describe it as the, the concept is is journeying through these different moods, these different styles, these different characters. But if you compare it to something like, you know, Days of Future Past um, or uh, some of the other concept albums to come where there is some story, some something that threads the first track down to the last track, I don't think Sgt. Pepper is that. But I, I do think that it is... Um, uh, it, it was... It did accomplish what McCartney wanted, which is freeing them from being the 
the older Beatles, the touring Beatle band, and being a band that could play in lots of different styles, whether it was Indian music or uh, circus or uh, the, the concert hall if she's leaving home. And, and to, to the point you made earlier, a lot of this had already been done to some extent on Revolver. Hmm. I don't know. I, like, so, Steve, I guess one of the questions is, is this different somehow from an album where the band just kind of coughs up the best songs that it has available. Are there songs kind of written in service? Like, would Mr. Kite, for example, have been written if they weren't in the service of some kind of thing that they were trying to do a little bit separate from just... I mean, usually I I think a band's album is just the best songs that they've written recently, right? Right. Um, No, it's a good question. And actually, uh, I I had a thought about this going back... uh, 50 years when when it first came out which is which is that you know we were all many of us were very uh, taken with the idea that because of the Beatles pop music and rock music could now be consul- considered art and and there was something oddly satisfying about that idea I'm not even sure quite why but I would say that if if uh, if we're talking about the idea of a concept album to me the the concept is that uh, it becomes sort of in the way that Revolver also was a, a, a sort of catalog demonstrating what pop music can be, demonstrating obviously what these four musicians can produce, but also demonstrating what the idea of pop and rock music can can possibly be. It can be non-Western, it can be electronic, it can be a, a kind of social commentary, it can be a an old-fashioned love ballad. You know, it can be all these things and still somehow fit on one LP, which I think itself is an interesting concept and, and remains so. Yeah, I would agree with that, Steve, and, and, and I would tie in also the album presentation, the artwork, the mm. cover art, the, the, mm-hmm. the gatefold, the, the lyrics on the back, the, the, the um, cutouts that came with it. I mean, it, this was a presentation of a work of art. It mm-hmm. wasn't just another collection of songs. Mm-hmm. I, I want to just play another song uh, here. I, I was, first of all, gratified by, Scott, what you did with this song. It's a song I've always been fond of, but I, I didn't really know whether anybody else cared about it very much or not. Uh, I should say it by its proper title, which I believe is Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, exclamation point. Uh, so let's let's play a little bit of it, and then I want to um, get you guys to talk about it a little bit more. This is one of Lennon's cuts. Um, most people know by now it's based on an actual 1840s poster that he, he owned, but uh, let's hear a little bit of it. So um, we'll hear a little bit of it uh, underneath it, uh, us as we talk, but uh, I'll just first of all give you the kind of dumb guy version of this, and then the two smart guys can kind of talk. But I, I remember, you know, as being a young dumb guy listening to this and just thinking, wow, this is just really great. And that was pretty much what I got out of it. Um, and I, I'm not, not that much further along now, although as I was thinking about it for this show, I was thinking, to me, it always felt kind of marvelously two-dimensional, like some kind of 
French modernist slash surrealist cartoon came alive, you know, but kind of alive in two dimensions. It, it, you're hearing all this stuff be described in this very uh, mannered way, I guess. Uh, and the music is really, really supporting that, um, but not in a way that I could have put in words to. So, um, Scott, I'll start with you because just watching the documentary, I thought, oh, well, that's why it sounds French because they did all these things, <laughs> right? Right, right. Yeah, no, they clearly uh, had a lot of fun putting this together, uh, especially with that middle section. They put a lot of work into lots of different fun parts that were then uh, recorded at half speed and sped up. And this is not only Lennon and the, the, the Beatles putting this together. This is an example of how important George Martin was to the group. Because George Martin, before the Beatles, had this whole career with uh, comedy albums. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the techniques that he developed working with people like Peter Sellers and Dudley Moore were things that he brought to the Beatles. He was as creative in many ways as the other guys were. And so he could, he could hold up with them. When they came up with an idea, he could come up with one better and vice versa. So they fed off one another. And, and any other producer, I think it would have been hard for this environment to exist in the same way. I think George Martin was another one of the guys when it came to putting especially this album together and a song like Mr. Kite shows that. You know, um, Steve, I, I want to hear just in general what you have to say about, about Mr. Kite. But one thing we haven't mentioned so far is the whatever pressure uh, the Beatles felt from Pet Sounds and for Brian Wilson. That's a whole other show you and I did about a month ago. Um, but obviously, you know, um, Heroes and Villains has sort of calliope sounds and everything. And this, song, this song, when you listen to it that way, it's like, oh, you want to do that kind of stuff? We'll show you how to do that kind of stuff, right? Right, and I and I think, uh, of course, Scott is exactly right. This this song, as as much as any Beatles song, probably stands as a just a tremendous monument to George Martin's inventiveness and creativity, and and uh, and and just you know considering the equipment they were dealing with, his his monumental in ingenuity at at finding ways to create these sound worlds. I mean. Actually, I was interested in, in Scott's uh, presentation. He isolates, uh, as I guess everybody knows, they took, they took uh, pieces of tape of steam calliopes or steam organs, as they, I think, call them in England, you know, and, and just snipped them up and threw them up in the air and then, and then pasted them back together. But it's interesting, when you isolate them without any of the chord changes or any of the background or bass or drums, uh, you you actually experience them as discrete, brief little musical moments. You know, not not just a wash as they become when everything is layered in together. And I I found that somehow oddly touching just to just to hear those actual brief little excerpts from the steam organs. All right, uh, let's do something else that will be oddly touching. Uh, this we're going to hear a little bit from once again Scott's documentary, uh, but this is the deconstruction of I think maybe the most uh, affecting and touching song on the album, and that's She's Leaving Home. So there are four violins, two violas, two cellos, a double bass, and a harp. Here, John and Paul recorded twice to sound like four voices. Quietly turning the back door key, 
Stepping outside, she is free. She. We gave her most of our lives. Is leaving. Sacrificed most of our lives. We gave her everything money could buy. She's leaving home after living alone for so many years. Father snores as his wife gets into a dressing gown. And as you watch Scott's documentary, you also find out, as you can also read in other books, that this is actually about a real young uh, lady who did uh, leave home, who disappeared for a while, um, and eventually came to America and changed her name to Faith Middleton. So that's uh, <laughs> kind of a wonderful. No, that's not. That's not. That did not happen. Um, so, uh, Metcalf, I do want to go to you first because I have this question that isn't maybe dispositively answerable, but you know, listening to, to what Scott did there, a pulling out the strings like that and then kind of narrating them a little bit, I find myself wondering how much the Beatles, as opposed to George Martin. And, and I think Scott establishes it anyway that Martin didn't write this arrangement. I think this is the one that was farmed out to, to uh, another arranger. But th- there's, there's such a good understanding of what strings can do here. You know, when the double bass comes in at the very bottom of it with that sound, I- I'm thinking, wow, you know, it sounds like a real composer for strings has written this as opposed to some rocker dropping some strings into his thing. And I'm wondering whether you think that McCartney at this point is the person who really knows what he wants, exactly what he wants in that regard, or how much of it is a classical arranger jumping well, in? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I, I actually doubt, as much as I admire Paul's musical instincts, I, I rather doubt that he had much input into any of those string arrangements. Um, what, I, what I would say, and I think Scott will agree with me, is, is that we need to, uh, we need to salute uh, 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 just a career producer-arranger named Mike Leander who did that arrangement, who I, I don't know what his training was, but I don't think that that string and harp arrangement suffers at all, you know, in comparison to the standard that, that Martin himself established with, say, Eleanor Rigby or others. Um, you know, there's counterpoint, there's, there's contrary motion, there are all the things that we music geeks kind of look for when, when trying, to, trying to isolate and identify, you know, a really solidly done string arrangement. And, and we only need to look at the lousy Phil Spector uh, string treatments a few albums later to, to see that that is not a given. It's not a thing you can count on in that business. So so I, I think that's a, a absolutely critical uh, component of that song. Yeah, yes, I, I, I agree, Steve. And, and just to the point about how much did Paul know, I think Paul was uh, had the ability to make suggestions. And uh, George Martin actually mentions that he made a very critical suggestion to change the, the string arrangement on yesterday. So he always, always had a good ear. Later in life, of course, he would, com- he would compose his own classical pieces. But at this time, there's no way that Paul McCartney is writing a string arrangement. He's still not reading or writing music. He doesn't know um, the, the, the details of writing counterpoint or how to assign voices to different instruments. But he certainly can listen back and say, you know, I think it would be nice if we went to a flat seventh here instead of this. So... It's certainly possible that he had some suggestions, but that is different than coming up with the whole arrangement. Mm. 
Um, uh, let's get into, well, we almost have to take a break here, but let's open up a Pandora's box instead. Um, so <laughs> there, there were some people, um, and Steve, I'll, I'll let you start on, out on this. I mean, obviously the, the general reaction to this was a claim and a claim that went on, uh, for years. Um, uh, as you know, Steve, uh, I, as a ninth grader, was uh, in, under the thrall of an English teacher named Tyler Tingley, who felt that we would probably understand uh, James Joyce and other things that we uh, needed to understand with, that were full of illusions uh, and symbolism coupled with random folly, that we uh, maybe our best chance would be through this music. He had us studying uh, Sgt. Pepper and, and some of the other music that was to come from there, from 67 to, to 69. But there are some people, there were some people at the time who said, you know what? This is the death of rock and roll. This is like everything that was sort of spontaneous and heartfelt uh, and edgy and ballsy and soulful about rock and roll uh, swept aside in favor of calculation, uh, invention, uh, and and sort of uh, various kinds of tours de force that we don't really need. Is any of that a legitimate criticism? Well, I mean, it's it's a it's a historically true criticism. I mean, uh, you know, I think that argument took shape uh, most kind of concretely in the in the ancient and still you know brewing you know Beatles versus Stones conversation you know and the Stones would be disdainful of of uh, you know some of the Beatles more mannered uh, utterances and even even Lennon himself you know later on kind of unattractively accused Paul of writing what he called granny tunes or granny songs so yeah, I mean that 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 goes on. I'm not so sure that it's that convincing anymore because, you know, it, even if it wasn't rock and roll in any recognizable sense, it it was it was something valuable. It was something new and and fresh and and as it turns out, something that lasts a, a half a century and we're still talking about it. So, you know, whether it qualifies as rock and roll or not, it feels kind of irrelevant to me at the moment. Yeah, Scott, what's your reaction to the the thumbs down crowd? Well, my reaction is that that, that all through uh, popular music, and actually back to classical times, there were there was always this this uh, this group that says, "Well, this is going to destroy music forever," and it started before the Beatles. It, it's happened after the Beatles, um, and it's happening now. You know, EDM or hip hop or rap or heavy metal. You know, they're all going. You know, music will never be the same or destroying music. I don't think you can look at it this way. I, I think you have to look at it as a defining moment. In music, it changed what an album could be. It changed what you could put on an album, and, and what you what you could call rock and roll or pop music or whatever you want to whatever label you want to put to this. And I think that it couldn't help but influence everything that came after it. It opened up a lot of possibilities. Um, I, I say in my lecture, you know, there were all of these bands like the Floyd and the Doors and, and other bands that were out there, Zappa, who were doing creative things. And so it's not like the Beatles invented this stuff, but th they certainly helped open the floodgates, if you will, to people doing more than your typical three-minute pop song. And that journey started, you know, from the beginning, certainly from Rubber Soul, Revolver, Pepper, and uh, and then... Um, they sort of took a step back with the White Album and went the other direction. So um, you couldn't you couldn't say that Sgt. Pepper was not an influential album. You can hate every song on it, but you have to say that it certainly influenced pop music going forward. I don't think that means the death of rock and roll. There are still bands that sound like you know a band that could have been recorded in the early 60s, but it opened up a lot more possibilities. All right, we're going to grab a break here. We have one more segment. We'll be back after this.
That, of course, is Good Morning. Good Morning from uh, Sergeant Pepper. So Lonely Hearts Club Band. We are uh, remembering that album today. Uh, we are talking to Scott Fryman, uh, who is a musicologist, composer, and producer, and the lecturer behind uh, Deconstructing Sergeant Pepper's. Uh, that movie will be shown at Real Artways in Hartford starting next Friday, April 14th. There's a lot of things that I can now tell we're not going to cover on this show. You're going to have to go to the movie uh, if you want to learn more about it. But um, and for, I also want to just take a moment. Uh, I don't have Kyle and Wolf to do this for me this week. So uh, Jonathan McNichol is the person who produced this show. Betsy Kaplan's on the board playing all these clips. Uh, and thanks to everybody else who's uh, helping out behind the scenes on this show. Um, I will say that tomorrow uh, I'm going to be over at Watkinson uh, doing a show about language, which you'll hear later. So you'll instead uh, hear our multiverse show, a show about the notion of multiverses. Uh, that'll be tomorrow. So... Um, uh, we have a lot of things to cover, but Steve Metcalf, uh, in in many ways, this song, this Good Morning, was the first song that leapt out at me off this album, maybe because it was more, it was closer to a recognizable rock and roll song than maybe some of the other ones. I didn't have a really expansive musical imagination uh, then or maybe now, um, but I, I think if we say nothing else about this song, it's time to pause and say something about Ringo Starr. Uh, <laughs> right? I mean, his his most famous contribution to this album probably is the singing on A Little Help With My Friends. But, you know, the drumming here is just like out of the wor- out of this world. Yeah, particularly since there are all these meter changes, which I'm not, I'm not sure Ringo had a lot of experience with changing meters privately, uh, I mean, prior to joining the Beatles. Although, truthfully, if, if you're going to salute Ringo, as I think uh, is... Uh, certainly called for here. Uh, Ringo's drumming on Day in the Life. Of course, mm-hmm. we, we could do a whole show on Day in the Life, obviously. But, <laughs> yeah. um, um, you know, Ringo's drumming on Day in the Life truly is visionary and, and uh, I, I think surprised even him, as, as I think I recall him saying at some point. Um, but I just want to say one thing about, about the entire, uh, because Good Morning reminds me of this, you know, the entire feel that you get, that I get at least from, from Sgt. Pepper, as dazzling as it is, is that, you know, the sun is kind of setting simultaneously on the Beatles. I mean, with Revolver, they kicked the door down, and it was like anything goes, and where are they going to go from here? Here it was like now we're demonstrating what we can do, um, uh, almost the apex of what we can do, and we're not going to be able to replicate that. And indeed, 
really, uh, they weren't able to. And, and so I think you have simultaneously the satisfying feeling of having reached the mountaintop. But as I say, you know, you feel like the sun is setting in, in this kind of in this kind of distant way. And Scott, I'm also wondering if the sun is setting a little bit on the collaborative nature of the band, uh, that maybe more now than ever, you've got situations where only one Beatle is involved in, in a particular song. I don't know if that had started earlier than that or, or, or not, but uh, I, I, well, anyway, I'll just talk about that. Well, it probably started with yesterday, which was pretty much all McCartney and, and strings, uh, which was done with the, the rest of the Beatles' blessing. But I do think Revolver is the last time you have all four Beatles really collaborating and having fun together in the studio. I think Pepper was largely a John and Paul project, and George and Ringo were sort of side players to, to a large extent, obviously making key key contributions, but really John and Paul were driving this. And then as you move on, you know, Brian dies, Brian Epstein, their manager dies, and you do Mystery Tour, which was, you know, Paul sort of pushing that one hard. The White Album, they're all sort sort of fracturing. You have, you know, Let It Be and, and Abbey Road, kind of the last hurrah. So I do think that that started, that uh, uh, idea of the Beatles not functioning as a collaborative starts with Sgt. Pepper. I also want to make one other comment based on what Steve was saying. I think, you know, you can't ignore how extraordinary that orchestral buildup that ends A Day in the Life is, how important it is, and how dark it is. I mean, it scared me as, as a kid. And it is kind of reinforcing what Steve is saying, is that this, this, is, a, this is not necessarily all fun and games, as a lot of people think of, of, of the whole flower power thing. This is something dark here, and it sort of was a, a hint towards what might be coming on the White Album just a year later. Yeah, there's so many things that I would, I'd hope that we would get to, uh, and, and instead I think you're going to just have to watch Scott's movie because it, it, all those things are, are there. Uh, I had hoped we could spend a f- little bit of time talking about Within You, Without You, which is sort of another part mm-hmm. uh, of the fragmentation mm-hmm. we're talking about. I mean, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think any Beatle besides George Harrison was, was in the studio for any aspect of Within You, Without You. I'm not not sure if they were in the studio. They certainly didn't play on on that song. Yeah. So, um, and I, I just would salute what Scott does in this movie in terms of talking about how Harrison, who was still a little bit of a, a neophyte, if not a dilettante to uh, to Indian music, uh, was running very much in that mode. And then George Martin just did this overlay of very, you know somewhat more Western strings that just I mean the whole thing is just so it, it helped me understand what's actually going on there anyway. What what you did. Uh, there, Scott. Well, thanks. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I really think that the the unsung hero of this album is George Martin. And of course, the Beatles were always frustrated that he was getting too much credit. But George helped to uh, helped with every song on this album so much. And as much as you can you can call out each of the individual Beatles for their contributions, Martin on songs like Within You, Without You and, and even A Day in the Life. I mean, you couldn't have those songs without George Martin. So uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, and we're going to end with uh, playing some of uh, Day in the Life. Uh, and actually, I think we're going to—are we ending with the Day in the Life, sort of showing uh, the—oh, the, no, we're just ending with Day in the Life. Um, so, um, so Metcalf, talk us into a, a day, day in the Life. To tell us what it went <laughs> after you went after you'd elbowed all these old ladies and uh, babies out of the way of the Schenectady record store and gone running home with your little It was, it was more children, I think. So I, I would just say this, you know, every once in a while, more, more than every once in a while, so, somewhat uh, frequently, I come across uh, a young person, often it's a heart school student, 
of mine or somebody that uh, that I get to know from the school, and and they will say something like, "So what is the deal with the Beatles here?" Because they might know, you know, "She Loves You" or "Oh Bloody" or something from whatever a commercial, uh, but they don't really have a sense of what that was all about, and they 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 know that it's important, and they know that they're supposed to think of it as important, and invariably I will say, "Go listen to a day in the life." And equally invariably, they will come back and say, oh, okay, I get it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't know. I think that's, that's, all I can, that's all I can say in one minute. Um, well, Scott, I can give you uh, – uh, I mean, you, you have a, a lengthy disquisition on this. And, and in a way, one of the things that you point out, you can even maybe start playing it underneath us uh, as we head down the home stretch here. But one of the things that the Beatles do or maybe McCartney decides to do is kind of end the album – with Sgt. Pepper coming back, and then like, oh no, there's like this one more thing, right? Right. Yes, absolutely, and what an extraordinary thing it was, and there's so much to talk about in this song, you're going to have to have me back for another show, yeah. but it's, uh, it is really uh, like nothing that had been heard before, and maybe even since, um, and it was really a true collaboration between John and Paul. Ringo's drumming is outstanding, as Steve uh, mentioned. George Martin's contribution, helping them realize that orchestral buildup. And then even that idea of ending with a piano chord that just lasts until <laughs> yeah. it fades into obscurity for 45 seconds. It's just, uh, it's just breathtaking. All right, Scott Fryman, we're going to have to stop it there. Uh, but the movie is Deconstructing Sgt. Pepper. is coming to Real Artways. Thanks again to Steve Mitkoff. Would never do it without him. He dragged himself from his sickbed to join us today. It's been a day in the life, though, and uh, we'll be back tomorrow.